this week, someone asked me, who's preaching Sunday? And I said, I am. And they said, hold it, you just preached last Sunday. And I said, yeah, I know, um, but I'm preaching this week instead of next week because I have the privilege of speaking at my mother-in-law's memorial service this coming Saturday down in South Carolina. My wife's parents were married almost 65 years. They had their ups and downs, as all couples do, but I'm very thankful that God chose them as, I can say, my second set of parents. And about 12 to 15 years ago, my mother-in-law, can you hear me okay? Yeah, okay. Uh, 12 or 15 years ago, my mother-in-law began to show signs of short-term memory loss and dementia. And my father-in-law has been an example of deep, loyal, committed love for his wife since then. Uh, he often said to folks, I married her for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. Of course I'll take care of her. Of course we'll stick together. So we'll be with him during Thanksgiving break, and it's just a great example to me personally, as well as to everybody who knows uh, her family down there, um, of this kind of sacrificial love. And I'm grateful for that myself. It's the kind of love that we're going to look at today in the book of Ruth. So if you've been with us in November, we've looked at this small book. Uh, it's only four chapters long, but it's one story. And instead of telling the whole story in one week, we're carving it up into the four weeks, four chapters. So best way I know to do it is to just review uh, where we're up to, and then we'll start in chapter 3 today, okay? In chapter 1, an Israeli couple with two sons moved across to Moab, and you see on the map here, it's across the Jordan River, and that was because of a famine that was in the land of Israel. Sadly there, her husband died. Their two sons then married local Moabite women, but then those two sons also died shortly after that, leaving only mother Naomi and the two daughters-in-law with her. Later in chapter 1, Naomi decides to go back home, back to Bethlehem, but only one daughter-in-law, Ruth, showed her loyal love by returning with her mom to Israel. And Ruth chapter 1 then ends this way. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And then last week, I was able to share with you in chapter 2, something about the background here in Bethlehem. So once they get back to Naomi's hometown, you recall, Ruth goes out to what was called glean in a field. And if you remember, the Jewish law said that uh, people could put the edges of their farms as open grazing, so to speak. 
people who were poor or foreigners who had need could pick as if it was their own field. And Ruth, too, says that she just happened to glean in the field of a relative named Boaz. And you remember he is characterized as a good and godly man, called a man of standing. And in chapter 2, he shows much kindness to this woman that he just happens to meet. So, last week then, uh, we, we talked about the importance of our lives having these margins that are open as we give of our time and our resources to anybody and everybody in need. Now today, in Ruth chapter 3, we're going to see something deeper, something maybe a little harder to hear. We're actually going to hear about a a love that is not distant to the edges of our lives, but rather one that is really close up and we might even say costly. And I'm going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to break it up into the three scenes as it's written here. So um, if you want to uh, follow me, I, I, I just have to, though, build a bridge here to the culture at the time because if I talk about, you know, like, what did you have for breakfast? Uh, you know, oatmeal, granola, or you know, like granola bars or something. You ever think about where that stuff comes from? And I don't mean Costco or the grocery store. I'm talking about where it really comes from. Well, in the ancient world, everybody knew what I'm going to explain in a minute here. Um, to get edible whole grain from barley plants, and here's a picture of what it would be like. First of all, you had to go out in the field and with a sickle harvest the stalks of grain. And these photos show you the actual farmers that are working there. And then in this recreation, people behind who are gleaning, that is they're picking up either the grain that fell from the bundles or what the workers didn't harvest. And this is what barley grain actually looks like um, can you see your granola bar there? Maybe, maybe not. But somehow, there's a process in between. And in the ancient world, to get the edible whole grain from the plants, farmers would beat the heads of those plants. That's called threshing. And that process separated the kernel on the outside, uh, sorry, on the inside, from the husk on the outside, kind of like an eggshell on the outside of a, a grain. And they then threw the mixture of grain into the air. Here's a photo of someone doing that. And a strong wind took the chaff, or the, the husk on the outside, and blew it away, and the heavier kernels fell straight down. Here's a photo I found on the web where it's actually being done in Ethiopia today, in certain parts of uh, the country there. All right? So, us city slickers, a little more informed about where our food comes from. And th the place where this happened is called a threshing floor. It was a separate part of the farm, usually up on a high hill, where a wind could come along and do its work. 
Okay? So, let's take a read for the first six verses of Ruth chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then, go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then, go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. How's that for a proposition for marriage? I mean, here's a mother-in-law, a matchmaker, could we say, who says, I love this daughter-in-law of mine, she's left her people, she's left her gods. If you go back to Ruth chapter 1, right? Here's her faith in Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. Your God, Naomi, will be my God. That's her confession of faith. And she steps over into the God's land, Israel, Bethlehem, and owns her new identity. And Naomi says, I love this daughter-in-law so much. I want her to have a future, to have safety. And so she concocts this plan to propose marriage to this man named Boaz, who's a relative of the family. Now, this is not what you and I would think about when somebody says, hey, I just got engaged. Yeah, what happened? You know, well, we're at the beach or, you know, he got on his knees or something. No. What is this all about? One commentator said that sexual overtones are present in the action of a man uncovering a man's legs in the dark of the night and lying down. There can be no doubt. Yeah, that's here. But this was her way of proposing marriage through an acted symbol. You'll see that in a minute. So before we go there, though, do you see how risky this is? This could be misinterpreted. You know, she's putting herself in the role of, what do you call it, a gold digger? You know, going after the older rich guy? Or maybe, maybe he could take advantage of her, this vulnerable young woman at night with his sensual pleasures, and then the next morning he could deny everything and accuse her of whatever he wanted. Well, let's see what scene two looks like. It's the longer portion here. It goes from verse 7 to verse 15. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly uncovered his feet and lay down. 
in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am Ruth, your servant, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. And then verse 15 ends. He said to her, bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. So it worked. Ruth approached Boaz, as instructed, at night and offered this for us, strange invitation to marriage. But there's, there's something here, again, that we're not used to either, because what's this language here of you are a, in the NIV it says, guardian redeemer of our family. Redeemer. If some of your Bibles will read, and others, uh, the Christian Standard Bible says, family redeemer. This is a rich term in the Old Testament, and it, it applies to a male member of a clan who sacrificially helps his extended family during hard times. Whether those hard times were, say, financial with loss of property or the death of a male who didn't have a son to take over the family name. Now, we see, we don't have a cultural parallel to this exactly. But if you've ever heard of, let's say, um, maybe there's a family business owned by different people in the family, and let's say one family member needs cash, and another family member will buy out that stake in the family business. That's kind of the principle. Or if maybe there's a family whose uh, parents can't parent a child adequately, and so they put the child in a relative's home either for a period of time or maybe someone else actually adopts the children. You've heard of that. In fact, that's where legally we still call that a guardian, a guardian redeemer. So that's what Ruth is appealing to 
because that's who Boaz was. In other words, he was a relative close enough with means enough to help. Now, I have to say that this concept of being a redeemer, obviously, right? We sang songs today. It's carried over into the New Testament where Jesus is called our redeemer. So when Jesus healed sick people or showed care for poor people, he displayed what a perfect redeemer looks like. This kind of one-way love that goes toward the person in a relationship. And in his death on the cross, Jesus' lifeblood redeemed the world from its greatest need, forgiveness of sin. So, back to Ruth. This newly identified guardian redeemer, Boaz then, let's think about how it could have gone. Remember I said there was a risk here? He could have, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, reacted with shock at this woman. Here's the quote from another commentator. Boaz could have treated her as Moabite trash, scavenging in the garbage cans of Israel, and then corrupting the people with her whorish behavior. But instead, he blesses her in verse 10. The Lord bless you and accepts her proposal as an act of sacrificial love. Now, the, the sexual tension that we see here is, is heightened. It's heightened because it stands in contrast to their godly character, right? If you go back, uh, like we looked last week, in chapter 2, verse 1, Boaz is called a man of standing. That's the exact same Hebrew phrase that's used in verse uh, 11, where he says to her, you are a woman of, not standing, but of noble character. The same in the Hebrew. No, there's no uh, hanky-panky going on here. In fact, just the opposite. The symbolism is great. Take your blanket and cover me. Just like the wings of a bird will cover its young, you come and protect me. Now, you know, you, you kind of wish the story would end here. It's not resolved because he says, hold it, time out. I'll do it, but technically there's another male relative in the family line that's closer than I am. So here's his integrity coming out again. Uh, he says, I, I have to give first right to him, right of refusal. And if you come back next week, Pastor John will tell you about that story in Ruth chapter 4. But as it is, we move on to the third scene here as it wraps it up. Take a look at chapter 3 and verse 16. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? And then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. 
That's the story. What character quality just kind of oozes out of this passage? Well, it's summarized in one word. And the word, I just kind of read it, and I'm sure it kind of quickly goes right through our minds because it doesn't sound like a very special word. But in the Hebrew language, it's a very unique word. And the word is chesed. Now, you see it's spelled here with an H. The letter in Hebrew, like in Arabic, is really located deep in the throat, so it's more like a chesed. But we don't speak that way, and at least if you don't have a cold, you don't speak that way, right? So some people will put a C on the front, and it looks like chesed, you know, like Hanukkah, Chanukah, uh, won't go there yet. But, uh, or some people put a K on the front of it, chesed. I'll just leave it as chesed, however you want to say it, or even if you don't want to say it, at least know that the word itself is so rich in meaning that one translation of it, one word, can't do it justice. You see, it's a combination of both commitment, like loyalty, and sacrificial love, deep love. You put those together. It's translated in the NIV here, kindness. And this word is so, so rich. In fact, let me show you two passages in Ruth where it shows up, once for Ruth and once for Boaz. In the passage we just read, here's uh, Boaz saying to Ruth, the Lord bless you, my daughter, this kindness, you see that, is greater than what you showed earlier. Well, what chesed love did she show earlier? She left her hometown to go be with her mother-in-law. She left her foreign worship of the Moabite gods and went to worship the true and living God in Israel. That was loyal love. That was a commitment with devotion attached to it. And that's the same thing she is doing right now. She's putting her life at risk. Will you marry me? You are a guardian redeemer. He could have said no, or worse. And he, back in chapter 2, is described by Naomi like this. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He, that is Boaz, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Boaz, this big-hearted man of standing, a great heart for the Lord and a great heart of love, not just for people on the edges of his field, but for those that he is in a relationship, a family, a covenantal relationship with. There's a great book on the book of Ruth by our friend Paul Miller. Some of you have read this book before, haven't you? And it's called A Loving Life, and in it he says, Hesed is one-way love. Love without an exit strategy. 
When you love with hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love, no matter what the response is. So, if the object of your love snaps at you, you still love that person. Your response to the other person is entirely independent of how that person has treated you. Hesed love is stubborn love. Now, I've got to remind you that any discussion of love and self-sacrifice needs to recognize that there can be those who will seek to abuse or manipulate another person's love. So remember, in those cases, God isn't calling us to suffer abuse or remain in unsafe situations. Please ask for help and reach out if that's your situation. But I've got to ask. Here's the question for today. I've got to ask. Who will you love with Hesed love? You see, God has put people in your life, not people you've chosen, but people in the covenant relationships of your life that are often really hard to love. Am I right? I mean, you don't even have to say it. I know it's true. Yeah, there was a large amen from this side. So, okay. And it takes more than letting them glean in the, the, the fields of your life on the edges. It takes more than that to show love to people who you are in some way in a, in a relationship. You see, it takes this hesed, self-sacrificing, giving that costs you time, patience, maybe resources, listening, maybe even forgiving, and praying. Who will you love with Hesed love? Now, who? Well, let's start where this story is. This story is about a family. Isn't that where it all starts? You know, Dan talked about we're looking for a pastor here. You know what the Bible says is the best way to gauge a good pastor, a good elder, a good shepherd of the flock? Don't look at his pastoring skills. Look at his family. If he can't manage his own family well, don't let him in the church. That's what Paul says. See that principle there? Everything starts at home with your family. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8, anyone who doesn't provide for the relatives, especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But I'd be so bold as to say that if you're serving at Chelton, if you're taking your time and resources, and those could go to another family member, you better do that first. They need you more than we need you. That's really, really important. And you know, you don't get to choose your family, right? Isn't that the little proverb? You can choose your friends, but not your family. God puts them in your life. 
Remember chapter 2? It just so happened that Ruth ended up at the field of Boaz. But it didn't just so happen. God planned it like the master chess mover moving the pieces because he knows who's going to win. And he's putting you in the winner's seat, in the winner's place, by putting those people that you rub against the wrong way or they against you. And you say, now, you know, it, now it's suddenly getting quiet in here. I'm going to give you an assignment now. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. I'm told that more people get together with family at Thanksgiving than they do even at Christmas and New Year's. I don't know if it's true, but it's probably true that you will be with some family members next week or the week after. You know what that's like? Do we have to go to... That's the first sign that God wants you to show Hesed love to somebody. Do I have to sit next to, or you're watching, you know, the football games or something? I'm not sure I want to be in the same room with. Hmm. Remember my warning before, but with all things being equal, you need to do something with that. Don't just say, well, that's the way they are, and that's the way it's been. Be like Boaz. Be like Ruth. Be like Jesus. And if I could widen it, widen it to say, well, all right, what about our church family? You know, Jesus said in Matthew 12, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We're all family whether we like it or not. And sometimes the not comes through. When you walk through one of these doors, now many of us sit in the same place all the time, but have you ever thought, oh, I think I'll go sit over at this side because you don't want to really talk to or get near or see somebody else. That's the person that you need to say, God, I can't even choose my church family. Well, no, you can't choose your church family either. You need to press in there and ask God if he wants you to show some hesed love to a person like that. The people you seem to avoid might actually be the ones that God wants you to love and ones that might become so close to you that you can't even imagine how that would happen now. Paul Miller also says, there's nothing fair about this kind of love, but commitment love lies at the heart of Christianity. It's Jesus' love for us at the cross, and it should be our love for one another. So if the overwhelming love of God has captured your heart. And if you know that there's nothing that can separate you from His love in all creation, that will move you 
sacrifice your time, your emotions, yourself for the good of that person, for your good, and for God's glory. So, Lord, what a story. What a Savior. Hallelujah. Give us your heart of hesed love for the people that you put near us, knowing that while we were your enemies, your son died for us. In his lovely name we pray. Amen.